0: Welcome to this audio presentation of a Rick Brandt science adventure story, The Wailing Octopus, by John Blaine. Volume 8, Chapter 19, Yawning Takes to the Water A figure dove to meet Rick. He angled away, fighting the impulse to breathe, keeping the compressed air moving out of his lungs. The figure angled away with him, then suddenly sheared off. Rick shot past, and the figure followed. These new frogmen were diving in mid-season suits. He was aware of nearly a dozen of them. He didn't count them. With his terrible need for oxygen, he didn't really care much. But he knew he would make it. He had to. But where was Scotty? Rick shot to the surface and went right through it, his impetus carrying him into the blessed air. He gulped a great lungful before he fell back with a splash and as he hit the water, his fins were flailing to carry him toward the hastily glimpsed shore. A mass figure surfaced beside him and called, Take it easy! He only moved faster. The frogman caught him easily, because the power was gone from his leg strokes now. But he had enough strength to fight. He reached for the frogman's faceplate, and a strong arm pushed him back. A voice penetrated his consciousness. Stop it, Rick, or I'll have to let you have one. The frogman knew his name. He hesitated. Fist pulled back to throw the best punch he had left. The new frogman backpedaled. Hold it, the frogman called and lifted his face mask. Rick stopped moving, staring numbly. Jimmy Kelly? Lieutenant Kelly? Tow tell you back to the boat, the lieutenant called. Relax. Rick obeyed, head spinning. He was a little groggy and he couldn't make sense out of things. How had Kelly gotten here? And Scotty, where was Scotty? He started struggling again, calling his friend's name. He's all right, Kelly said urgently. Relax, Rick. Rick caught the words and they penetrated. How did Kelly know that Scotty was all right? But the lieutenant had spoken with authority, so he relaxed. Kelly towed him to the landing stage of the ship The Rick had seen, a destroyer escort. Willing hands lifted him from the water. He slumped down on the edge of the stage, shaking his head to clear it while Navy Frogmen stripped his aqualung harness from him and pulled the mass from his face. A voice said, Here, drink this. A mug of steaming black coffee was thrust into his hand and he sipped, grateful for the spreading warmth it brought. Suddenly he started again. Scotty! Where is he? Up here, Rick, with me. He looked up and his eyes focused again on Tony and Zircon. A motor whale boat drew up to the landing stage and two husky frogmen handed up a suited figure. Here's one, Lieutenant, a frogman called. All right, Danny, where's the other? Heading for the reef at top speed. Jonesy's after him. Well, go help Jonesy haul him in, then. Yes, sir. The motor whaleboat veered off and sped toward shore. A frogman surfaced almost at Rick's feet. He instinctively drew back, and the frogman gripped the edge of the stage, spat out his mouthpiece, and pulled up his mask with the other hand. Rick found himself looking at Steve Ames. What was he doing here? Where's the brass ball? Steve asked. I don't know. With an effort, Rick pulled his scattered wits together. His mind began to work again. Obviously, through some miracle, Steve and Zircon had arrived on a Navy ship with Jimmy Kelly and a detachment of Navy frogmen. Scotty called from on deck. Set the octopus cave, Steve. I saw one of the frogmen drop it there. Steve hauled himself out onto the landing stage. He grinned at Rick. Feeling better? Much, Rick said. He was beginning to feel nearly human again. Let's go on deck. I want to find out about this octopus cave. Rick stood up and was surprised to find he didn't wobble. He followed Steve up the ladder to the deck and found Scotty seated on a canvas stool sipping coffee. Zircon asked anxiously, Are you all right, Rick? Tony said, Here's the doctor for a look at you. A young Navy officer joined them and motioned Rick to a canvas stool. He applied a stethoscope and listened, then grunted with satisfaction. He seems all right. Pulse a little fast, but that's to be expected. You want a slight dose of oxygen starvation. Feel better now? Rick nodded. He was beginning to feel wonderful. They were out of it, and with their whole skins. Scotty grinned sheepishly. I abandoned you. I had to. I completely ran out of air. I shoved my man away and headed for the surface. I felt pretty guilty about leaving you with the two of them. Rick returned the grin. I felt the same way. I thought I'd abandon you. But I see you got to the surface first. Steve accepted a cup of coffee and squatted on the deck, facing them. Suppose we start from the beginning. What happened? Rick told him, starting from the moment they had heard the brass ball wail. There were three of them. Did you get them all? Yes, including the one with a spear through his leg. Last one is just being hauled aboard now. He tried to get to the island. Jimmy Kelly and a group of frogmen joined them. Jimmy asked, How about the sounding gear, Steve? We'll ask now. How about that octopus cave? Where is it? We'll take you, Rick said. Let us get tanks from our boat. There should be a pair fully charged by now. Steve shot a look at the doctor. The officer shrugged and then nodded. Okay, if it's a short dive, they've had plenty for today. Chief, where are you? Kelly called. A frogman stepped from the rear of the group. Here, sir. Check the regulators, please. If they're okay, hook up fresh tanks. If not, loan them complete outfits. Yes, sir. Thanks, Chief. Then get set to come with us. Danny, Jonesy, Mike, and Dick will come along, too. Bring still and motion picture cameras. When we get down there, split into two-man teams and search the area. You know what we're looking for. It's just like the one we found off St. Croix. Rick stared at the frogman officer. Another brass ball off St. Croix? But there wasn't time for questions. Quick dive, please, Zircon requested. These boys have had more than enough. They're through as soon as they show us where the cave is, Steve agreed. Come on, gang. Let's get to it. Rick carefully checked his equipment, something no diver can ever take for granted or leave to someone else, while Scotty did the same. Then they put the equipment on and adjusted face masks. Their knives, Rick's camera, and Scotty's spear and gun were somewhere near the wreck. They would have to get them another time. The group entered the water. Rick looked around and oriented himself by the position of the water witch, then led the way with Scotty, Steve, and Jimmy swimming along with him, while the Navy frogmen stayed close behind. It was a thrill for Rick to be swimming with the famous UDT frogmen. He looked to the side and saw that Steve was perfectly at home in the water, and he marveled at the adaptability of the Yannig agent. Steve hadn't been joking when he said he would be an expert by nightfall. At the reef, Rick turned northward and led the way toward the level of the cave. A few moments later, he hooted for attention and, with a pointed finger, showed it to Steve and Jimmy. The octopus was still there. A frogman swam over and picked the little creature up. The octopus spurted away, leaving a blob of ink behind it. He came to rest above the cave and poised for a further fight. Rick swam down to the sandy floor of the cave and began to search for the brass ball. Scotty beckoned and they swam together toward the spot where Scotty had last seen it. The frogmen swam to the bottom with them, fanning out and searching. A few moments later, someone hooted, and a tanned, muscled frogman swam over, holding the object triumphantly. Steve Ames pointed to the surface, and Jimmy hooted in order. The group swam leisurely up through the murky layer, oriented themselves by the sleek shape of the destroyer escort hull, and emerged at the landing. The frogman who had found the ball handed it up to Hobart Zircon. Seabames motioned to one of the frogmen. Run these fellows over to the beach, please, then wait and bring them back. He turned to the boys. Put on dry clothes, then come on back. We need to talk. An hour later, the boys, the scientists, Steve, and Kelly were seated at the table in the destroyer escort's tiny wardroom their noses twitching over the savory steaks they were being served. The boys ate like starved men, talking a steady stream between bites. Rick sighed and let out his belt. Well, that's our story. What's yours? Steve stirred his coffee thoughtfully. I can make it short. We don't know the whole story yet, but we will by the time I get back to St. Thomas. Have you two any idea what these brass ball gadgets are? Well, we decided that they were probably sonar equipment of some kind, Scotty said, but we couldn't figure out what they were for. Well, that's actually pretty easy, although you couldn't know. They were for spotting submarines. Rick stared. Submarines? saw his look of bewilderment. It happens that our new atomic-powered subs are conducting maneuvers in this area. Does that help? Oh, yeah, it did. Light slowly dawned. Then these were scanning our subs? But I still don't see why it would be any problem to find them. The subs must have equipment that will tell them when sonar beams hit them. They do, and that's a big part of the story. Steve sipped his coffee for a moment. These sonar devices are a new type and very cleverly designed. They don't send out a continuous beam. Instead, they operate in bursts in a random pattern. They might send out a beam twice in a minute or wait an hour between bursts. The beam is extraordinarily powerful, but it's effective at a very large distance. The whale, of course, was the beam operating, Zircon interjected. You didn't hear the beam itself, since that's ultrasonic, but you did hear the mechanical vibration of the brass ball. It was a kind of subharmonic effect that was audible. That's right, Steve agreed. Anyway. There were several different stations in different locations. Some were on islands, some on fishing boats. Since they operated only in short bursts in random pattern, the subs and the special teams we sent out were never able to get much of a bearing on them. They must be self-recording, Rick said thoughtfully. Otherwise, the enemy couldn't get the information out of them. They are. Whatever echo they get makes a tracing inside the box they're mounted on. Scotty objected. But what kind of info is that? How can anybody tell anything about subs from such recordings? Well, by putting them all together and running a complex analysis, the analysis will give speed, depth of operation, maneuverability, and, if the spies are lucky to have the beams operating at the right time, the number of torpedoes fired, and the same kind of information about the torpedoes. That's enough information to make it worth an enemy's while. I'll say. Scotty turned to Zircon. And what were you doing, Professor? I'm afraid I arrived on the scene too late to do much good. Zircon boomed. However, I believe we can be useful in preventing such occurrences in the future. I have an idea for an improvement in our scanners that will allow a fix to be made on such beams. There was a pause when Dessert arrived. The boys savored excellent apple pie, smothered in a generous helping of ship-made ice cream. We thought Zircon might help us work out a system of getting fixes on the transmitters, Steve said. As it happened, we got a lucky break. The subs happened to have their devices pointed at St. Croix simultaneously when a beam scanned them. They got a fix on it. We flew a team of frogmen down in a Navy amphibian right in the middle of the second storm. I found it and got the men who were handling it. One of them talked. Jimmy Kelly picked up the story. You arrived with Zircon at about the same time the St. Croix team took off from our base and headed right into the storm. They didn't get back until late last night and it was nearly dawn before we got the story from the man who talked. Then we loaded onto this DE and headed here. I'm glad you didn't wait ten minutes longer, Rick said fervently. They outfoxed us. I kept listening for their boat, but they didn't use it. They probably decided to swim out and sneak up on you, Sir Con stated. After capturing Tony last night, their suspicions were probably aroused somewhat. Even if they swallowed his story entirely, it would only be good sense to check up. Tony looked hurt. I'm sorry you don't think my story was enough to allay their suspicions entirely. But speaking of listening for their boat, why didn't you hear this ship coming? And- And why didn't the fancy frogmen? Rick thought that one over. We wouldn't have heard the ship until it was very close because of the noise our bubbles were making. But we should have heard it about the time it left the reef opening near our cottage. I don't know why we didn't. And I don't know why we didn't see it, Scotty added, big enough to be spotted at a rising distance. Jimmy grinned. We pulled a fast one. We had enough steerage weight to drift over your position after a few turns of the screw down by the reef passage. You see, we didn't know what was going on, so we took no chances. Then when we got into position, we got into the water without waiting to anchor. We dropped anchor right after we got both of you out, but you probably didn't notice. I couldn't have cared less at that point, Rick said, and Scotty echoed the sentiment. The reason you didn't see us coming is that we came from the other side of the island. It's much safer for a ship that draws as much water as this one. Tony spotted us as we approached the southern point. Steve grinned. Anyway, it's a good idea to move in on an objective as quickly and silently and invisibly as possible. Have you captured the rest of the stations yet? Rick asked. No, but we have our teams out, and they know where to go and what to look for, thanks to the man who talked last night. Who are these people, anyway? Scotty demanded. Steve scratched his chin. Well, he said finally, you might put it this way. They're people who have no business knowing what they're trying to find out. Rick hit a grin. He knew perfectly well they would get no more information out of Steve. The essence of security is to give information only to people who have a need to know. The Spindrifters had no reason for knowing the identity of the enemy, apart from their own curiosity. One thing was certain, though, it was another nation that wanted that information. "'You're probably tired of answering questions,' Rick said. "'But I've got one more. How did you happen to arrive right in the nick of time?' "'Nothing mysterious about that,' Jimmy Kelly answered. "'We steamed up to the island and set a boat ashore with Professor Zircon. Dr. Briotti had seen us approach, and he met the boat. He told us you were diving.' zircon had assumed as much since we could see your boat anchored on the reef. I told them about last night, Tony added. Yes, and we sent a party of men to the house up the beach to capture these fancy frogmen of yours. The house was deserted. Since their boat was tied up, we made a quick assumption that they were out on the reef with you. We did a fast run out. And got the fright of our lives, Steve finished. We knew there were three of the enemy and two of you down below. We could only see three sets of bubbles. We thought you were done for. It was remarkable the way Lieutenant Kelly and his men got ready to dive, Zircon said. I've never seen people move that fast. Steve, too. Then just as they were about to go over the side, we saw two more bubble trails and knew at least that you were still alive. But in a moment, the entire pack of bubbles merged. We hit the water, Jimmy Kelly said. We were about to dive when one of the enemies skyrocketed up. He was blue in the face and scared witless. We hauled him out and then started to dive again. And along came Scotty, half dead and babbling about you. I started to straight down to get you, but you met me halfway. He grinned. You weren't in very good shape either, for a few minutes. How about the men? Where are they? Down below, locked up in the brig, with an armed guard at the door. Steve Ames finished his coffee and sat back with a sigh of satisfaction. I'm happy, he announced. The boys grinned. He looked it. Glad you wound this up so fast, Zircon boomed. When we return to Charlotte Amali? Steve looked at Jimmy Kelly. You in a hurry? Not particularly. Now that this case is over, we go back to some pretty dull routine. Why? Oh, I thought your boys might like a little recreation. Jimmy looked suspicious. Any sailor likes recreation. The more the better. UDTs enjoy it more than most. What's on your mind? Steve's wave took in the four spin drifters. Wasn't their fault one of the gang talked his head off last night. If he hadn't, their work here would have given us a lead we couldn't have gotten in any other way. Suppose we pay him back. Jimmy sighed. Get to the point. Keep the ship here tomorrow. Turn your boys loose to help find the treasure they're after. You've got equipment they need. Besides, I'm sure your gang can find some nice souvenirs if they put their minds to it. Old cutlasses, cannon, cannonballs, things like that. Huh, all right, it's a deal. The UDT lieutenant chuckled. I'll try a little souvenir hunting myself. Of course, it's unofficial. I'll have to ask for volunteers. Think you'll get many? Rick asked anxiously. Steve and Jimmy laughed. Lieutenant said with a chuckle, If one of them doesn't volunteer, I'll turn him over to the doctor because I'll know he's sick. The UDTs volunteer because they like to swim. It isn't often they get a chance like this just to dive for fun. We don't find the treasure, Scotty said with satisfaction. It'll be because it isn't there. Chapter 20. The Buried Secret At first, the captured frogmen were defiant. They insisted that the Navy had nothing on them. The brass ball wasn't theirs. They were only sport divers having fun. Then, faced with the unassailable fact that Rick had taken motion pictures of their activities, they lapsed into sullen silence and refused to talk. Rick and Scotty watched Jimmy Kelly check the diving equipment of the Frogman teams lined up on the destroyer escort's deck. Beyond the teams, they could see the three enemy Frogmen taking the air under the watchful eye of a shotgun-armed sailor. "'I wonder if we'll ever get the full story,' Rick mused. "'We got all we need,' Scotty answered. "'What pieces are missing?' "'Well, I'm curious about the chicken.' I think we hit it when we decided they wanted to scare us out of the octopus cave area. But it would be nice to know for sure. And why did they take the sonar equipment to the eastern reef during the storm? Probably to make a recording as a routine check. They couldn't assume all subactivity was taking place to the west. But how can we be sure? We can't. We can only try to figure out what happened based on the information we have. For instance... There must have been a sonar unit near where we swam at St. Thomas. That's the only thing that could have got the shadow so excited. But what difference does it really make? We know most of the story. We can guess the rest. Steve may be able to fill in some of the pieces later, Rick observed. He'd like to have a thing wrapped up neatly with no loose ends hanging. Still, that was almost impossible with a case like this. Jimmy Kelly called. You boys ready to go? Wherever you are, Rick called back. He picked up his heavy three-tank block from where it rested against the rail and handed it to Scotty. While his friend held the rig, Rick got into it. Then he performed the same service for Scotty. The tanks were heavy. Tony and Zircon, similarly equipped, came out of the Amidships cabin with Steve Ames. Jimmy had loaned equipment from the Frogman's supplies to enable the group to work around the wreck longer. The search party assembled on the landing stage. Jimmy had split his teams into two groups. They would dive in relays. We'll look the situation over, then get to work, Jimmy instructed. How many have wrecking bars? Four of the UDT gang held them up. All right. Turn and turn about. Work for ten minutes, then pass them on to your mates. Watch your hoses, especially when working inside. Okay, let's go. They slipped into the water four at a time, Rick and Scotty in the first four. Once in the water, the weight of the heavy tanks vanished. The boys had removed weights from their belts to allow for extra tanks and for more than ten additional pounds of air on the descent. A pair of frogmen paid out a heavy rope, taking the reel down with them in order to provide a direct link from the wreck to the ship. On the way up, the divers would pause at knots in the rope to decompress, allowing time for decompressed nitrogen to get out of their bloodstreams. With the boys and the scientist, Jimmy went over all visible portions of the wreck. He summed up his attitude with an elaborate shrug and spreading of his hands that said he didn't know where to begin. For his frogmen, he made a sweeping gesture that told them to tackle the wreck anywhere. The frogmen moved in, operating in pairs. The water clouded rapidly with silt. Particles of marine growth and fish eggs. The top of the captain's cabin came off. Rick swam through the murk and picked up the chair that had seemed to be in good condition. He carried it to clear water and placed it in the sand. Now that it was out in the open, he could see there were teredos, shipworms, that had feasted on it and burrowed into it until it was nothing but a chair shaped shell. The same was true of the cabin interior. It collapsed soundlessly under the prying bars of the frogmen. Under their enthusiastic attack, the water was soon so roiled that visibility at the wreck was reduced to almost zero. Jimmy sounded the signal for ascent, and the group surfaced without decompressing. They had just about exhausted a single tank. On the landing stage, the lieutenant said, No use continuing until the water settles. Any idea, chief? Sandy, the group's chief petty officer, replied, They could go to need a sand hose, sir. Most of the wreck is buried. Jonesy, a short, husky frogman with a bright red crew cut, added, Sir, I think the cannon and stuff would be on the deck ahead of the cabin we opened up, but the deck is under the sand. Should we rig a hose, sir? Good idea. Put a detail to work, Chief. Sanders called out four names and issued instructions. Jimmy called a ten-minute break for the rest. During the break, Rick sought out Steve Ames. He commented, You know, this wasn't a very well-organized gang. I keep thinking about the two who tried to get us at St. Thomas. Steve disagreed. You're wrong. It was a very well-organized gang. Their trouble was not enough trained agents. They had to hire extras, and the extras were just ordinary mugs, not very bright ones. It was the mugs who made the mistakes, not the real agents. Jimmy Kelly spoke up. Did we tell you? We got reports from the other UDT teams this morning. Our people have all the stations except one in British territory. Maybe our British cousins can get the station team for us. We've tipped them off. Lieutenant finished a glass of orange juice and rose. Time's up. Let's get back to work. Hobart Zircon asked. Don't you want to take your camera, Rick? That's a good idea. He hurried to get it. One of the frogmen had picked it up, along with the rest of the equipment they had left behind. The water had settled enough for a thorough inspection of the entire aft portion of the wreck. Rick and Scotty helped the frogmen poke into every possible place, without finding more than a pair of rusted cutlasses. Rick surveyed the scene with discouragement. The statue was somewhere under the sand, which probably meant they would never find it. He had a sudden realization, too. They had no proof that this ship was the mate in hand, no proof that the whole business wasn't just a wild goose chase. By the time the dive was over, the sand hose had been rigged. The first group surfaced, and Jimmy ordered the fresh group of frogmen to hose out the aft cabins to find anything that might be left. Then the group was to start work on the probable location of the foredeck. During the rest period, Rick told Jimmy about the other wreck they had found, the modern ship that he guessed was a war casualty. "'We'll take a look at it first thing in the morning before we shove off for St. Thomas,' Jimmy promised. "'You never know what you'll find in a wreck. We've found a lot of things worth salvaging.' The boys were now operating under Navy rules. They put on fresh tanks and got their instructions from Chief Sanders.' Longer decompression this time. Stick with me on the way up and move when I move. We don't want you to get the bends. The boys nodded their understanding, then took to the water. The frogmen below were still hosing sand. Water forced at high pressure through the hose that ran down from the ship, sent the stuff swirling in great clouds. The boys watched. They couldn't do much looking around until the water settled. Then they saw that the frogmen weren't waiting. They swam into the murk feeling around with her hands. Rick saw one emerge triumphantly, holding a round object that could only have been a cannonball. He and Scotty plunged in as well. Working with the frogman, they rapidly assembled a treasure trove of cannon, more cannonballs, cutlasses still in good condition, and useless ship's gear. Fifteen minutes later, a frantic hooting brought them in a rush to where Jonesy was holding something. Sir Khan and Tony got there at the same time, and soon all their work had ceased while Jonesy's find was examined. Tony took his belt knife and scraped, then looked around at the watching group and nodded. He clasped his hands together and shook them like a fighter, mitting the crowd. Rick and Scotty hooted their triumph. Jonesy had found the statue of St. Francis. The boys, the scientists, Steve and Jimmy carried the treasure to the surface. The rest of the frogmen continued hunting for souvenirs. On the landing stage, they put the statue down with loving care. Even under the marine growth, they could make out the cowled figure of the sainted monk, head bent over the fawn he held in his arms. Tony went to work, and soon there was a gleam of gold that brought a yell of triumph from the boys. Then, amazingly, the gleam of dull silver. Oh, bot, look at this! Tony exclaimed. The big scientist knelt and examined the silvery streak. He borrowed Tony's knife and probed. Then his laugh boomed out across the water. We are victims of our own research, he roared. All this trouble over a statue of lead. Lead? Rick stared incredulously. That can't be true. There's gold, too, he pointed out. Apparently gold leaf over a lead base. "'Tony said with a sigh. "'Sorry, Rick. Hobart is right. This is lead.' "'A call from the water made them look up. "'Chief Sanders and his diving buddy had surfaced, "'and they were carrying a statue of St. Francis. "'Behind them, another pair of frogmen, and another statue. "'Within half an hour, there were no less than eight identical statues "'lined up on the deck, St. Francis in lead.' repeated eight times. Scotty scratched his head. Well, he said finally, we certainly found St. Francis. In fact, we overdid it a little. Not until long afterwards did they learn the answer. Tony Briotti, a scientist of great persistence, did some research in England during a European trip to attend a conference of archaeologists. He found that the maiden hand had carried several dozen St. Francis statues, for sale to churches and individuals in the New World. Captain Campion had considered only one special enough to mention because it had been blessed by the Cardinal of France and entrusted to his care for delivery to the governor of Barbados. The Spindrifters took one statue as a gift for Barbie. A cutlass was Rick's share of the loot, while Tony took the bar shot they had found near the wreck and Zircon selected a cannonball it was understood that the knife Scotty had found was his so that he could resent it to Harts and Brandt. A few quick dives the following morning disclosed nothing of interest around the first wreck they had found, but Jimmy identified it as a common type of small cargo vessel. After that, the destroyer escort sailed for St. Thomas. Before they left, there was a time for a few words with Steve Ames. "'I'm leaving St. Thomas by air tonight for Washington,' he reported. "'Something new has come up, and I'm needed.' I may need you two before this case is over. The report wasn't detailed, but it carried a few implications that had me worried. We'll be ready if you need us, Rick assured him. Steve's warm smile flashed. I know, he said. I'll see you soon. The End We hope you enjoyed this Rick Brandt science adventure, The Wailing Octopus, by John Blaine. The Rick Brandt theme should be recognizable as the Johnny Quest theme, which was composed by Hoyt Curtin. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at ubiloaudio at ubiloaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of UBILO Audio. Just do a search for UBILO Audio on Facebook or do it from the main UBILO Audio webpage. We are Listen on iTunes and you can subscribe and download our podcast for free from there. If you like our podcasts, please feel free to tip us whatever or not you may like using the secure PayPal link. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. From all of us at Ubilo Audio, we thank you.